Hey guys, Tom Panneries here with a couple of notes before we start. First, I'd like to thank Scott Gardner for sending me an awesome poster for the NOM that he had signed by Michael Golden. Uh, and I posted a note about that in the last episode of In Country. You can go check that out over on the blog. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Second, a huge thanks to Michael Bailey. Not only is he a guest on this episode, but when my audio file proved to be all sorts of foobar, he sent me his backup, which was nice and clear and allowed me to edit and get this episode out to you. So thanks, Mike. I hope you and Rachel are, are doing well. Finally, you'll hear me say this episode is number 25 when it actually is episode number 26. That's because I recorded this before I recorded the Breakfast Club episode and I decided to release them out of order in a sense or as I was recording the Breakfast Club episode or prepping the Breakfast Club episode, I decided that was going to be 25 and this is going to be 26. So there's a mistake in there, whatever. But here we go with Pop Culture Affidavit episode 26, 1994, The Year in Comics, part one. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast covering everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm continuing my series of posts and episodes about 1994, the most important year of the 90s, with a look of, at 1994 as it pertained to comic books. And to talk about this with me is a special guest, someone who's been on the show before to talk movies, actually, but really is the person you want to talk about comics with, especially comics from the 90s. He's the host of several podcasts, including two of my favorites, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, and Views from the Long Box. Please welcome back to the show, Michael Bailey. Thank you very much, sir. It's a pleasure to be back. And you are hitting my sweet spot. Uh, comic book wise, with uh, with this year, you know, just yes. To tell you. <laughs> when, you fact, you... <laughs> when you announced that 1994 was the most important year of the 90s, I went. Finally, somebody agrees with me. <laughs> and you, um, you just hit uh, 94, I think, over at FCTC, right? We are half <laughs> uh, cover date wise. We are halfway through. Mm -hmm. uh, we have just as of this, as we're recording this right now, which will probably be out. Uh, before this episode actually hits, mm -hmm. uh, we just recorded the episode about Action Comics number seven hundred, uh, which was the June. Uh, that was the June nineteen ninety four. So we're we're going to be taking a quick break to talk about the Elseworld annuals, and then we're going to be talking mm -hmm. about something we'll probably mention a little. Well, we'll probably mentioning the Elseworld annuals as well. Yeah. Uh, but and we're going to talk about uh, Doomsday Hunter. Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey before getting yes. back into it and finally getting to something I know will be a major topic of discussion, Zero Hour. 
Yes, uh, so very we're, much we're, so. We're, uh, Jeffrey Taylor, who's my co-host on that show, and I are definitely you know eking our way through 1994, <laughs> uh, and it's it's <laughs> the memories it's it's bringing up is actually very appropriate for being on this show to discuss <laughs> 1994 in total. Yeah, and and um, not that we'll get like incredibly personal here with either of us, but I, the other reason I I wanted you on the podcast is that um, you and I, being a year apart in age, were almost of the same you know you were about you you turned 18 i turned 17 so so it's sort of the same sort of you know mindset that we were in uh even though i was about a year behind you in terms of life events and those sorts of things well it's it's not only you know like you said i turned 18 i graduated from high school but truly this was the year uh, that summer that I really kind of stepped into the larger world of comic book collecting. I had, you know, up until that point, basically stuck with the Superman books and, uh, you know, every once in a while venturing out. I mean, I had to, I mean, we were contractually obligated to collect the X-Men at some point yeah, uh, in our I, uh, in our teenage years. That would be 1992. Yeah, <laughs> 91 into 92 for me as well, because, you know, X-Force was awesome. Oh. And, you know between graduating high school and going to college and, and, and starting to collect more than just the Superman books on a monthly basis, it really was my, you know, my, my, my coming out year as a, as a comic fan and, uh, really set the tone for, uh, wasting money that could have been spent elsewhere, uh, for basically the rest of my life. I remember for me it was that that was um, like I said I turned seventeen so I started my senior year and I remember in terms of comics that if I was spending a lot of money on something it was more like I was deliberately choosing what I wanted to spend a lot of money on because I felt that I had been burned um, over the past couple of years by like the executioner's song and fatal <laughs> attractions and blood ties and something that, you know, we're sort of behind the scenes working on getting together death mate <laughs> and all these things. And, and, you know, the umpteenth chromium newsstand, you know, newsstand and direct edition and all this stuff and, and trading, we'll talk trading cards too. And, and I remember like you mentioned zero hour, I think, at one point, I may have owned every – I don't know if I got every crossover from that. I'm pretty sure I did. Um, I know I didn't buy every issue from Zero Month. I only bought the books that I was interested in from there, uh, which made me feel stupid years down the line because I should have picked up Starman for <laughs> Zero. <laughs> but, but, um, but, yeah, I remember that I – but it was kind of the same way for me. But 1994 just also personally was the year not that I discovered girls, that girl, girls actually discovered me. So that was one of those, like, weird sort of, okay, you know, you're, you're having this weird sort of one side of your life versus the other side of your life. And, you know, you're <laughs> fighting with one another for, for control of what you're going to spend your money on. <laughs> but – uh but uh, by the end of the year, I st- was still collecting and I was still reading uh, at least the books that I had been reading for a while, even though I dropped just about everything with an X on it and uh, and was closer to Superman and Batman and Robin and, and, and those books because I had been enjoying them more. 
the flash for instance and and that other stuff so so yeah so that's so I've, I've been looking forward to this i've been looking forward to this since we uh me too since we kind of are got it together so um for this episode we're going to we're going to take a couple of angles here um we're gonna, i'm going to start out by giving us a and we'll talk a little, little, little bit little excuse me a little bit of a about a brief overview of what the industry was like in 1994, because this is a big, um, I want to, I call it almost like the beginning of a transition for the comics book, comic books industry that happened from about 94, 96 into like from the early nineties to the late nineties. And then, uh, Mike and I are going to talk about, uh, you know, just the comics that came out, what we remember reading, what we remember being, um, published what we're surprised was still being published um, that people were still buying uh, and then we are going to run down um, our top five each for for that year because high fidelity and, uh, is awesome yes <laughs> that book actually came out the following year <laughs> believe it or not um, you know top five lists are, are great <laughs> I'm I'm just. I'm gonna say we're we're ripping off Nick Hornby and John Cusack and not you know Scott and Chris. <laughs> I uh, I I I if we're gonna rip off anybody, Cusack's the one to rip off. I mean, we we, we talked long and lovingly about the man in the Savage Steve Holland episode. We so. did. We did. <laughs> okay, so. Um, if you're going to talk about comics in 1994, you have to talk about comics as in the 90s as a whole. You kind of have to start before 94 to kind of get a little proper context um, as you go into the year. Uh, because it seems that, like I said, 1994 was almost the beginning of a transition. It was the end of one part of the 90s and the start of another. And um, I'm sure we can get into that when we're talking about specific titles, especially ones that lasted beyond 93, 94, 95. But really, um, 94 is the year that the comics industry pretty much almost collapsed in on itself, um, or at least it finished collapsing in on itself. Uh, I think you could say that the, cl- the collapse started in 93. Yeah, uh, that- <laughs> I, I, would, I would agree with that as well. It's almost like uh, you know the stock market collapsing in, in 1929. Yeah. Uh, you really didn't feel the full effects of that until several years later. And the yes. depression was really, you know, had really taken hold. So it was, yes, I forget which month it was in 1993, but there's a, there's a great book out there called comic book heroes by uh-huh. Gerard Jones and Will Jacobs. I that, heard of uh, it. I haven't read it. There's two editions of it. There's one that was published in like 1985. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then there's another one that was published in 1997 and during in between that time they both became professional comic book writers so what originally started out as this fun kind of reading guide of hey this is what we remember reading and these are the books that were out in the like the silver and bronze age turned mm-hmm. into my god we hate this industry <laughs> um, because as as the book progresses and it goes from the silver age into the 90s it's more and more bitter i i would say and that's just maybe that's just how i'm reading it now mm-hmm. but they had nailed it down to this one month in 93 that all of these new books were all released at once 
And much like in around the mid-80s when the black and white market collapsed on comic book stores. Yeah. You know, the, the, the center couldn't hold anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, you literally had... <laughs> there was a sporting goods store in the Lehigh Valley Mall near where I grew up that suddenly started selling comics and had a back <laughs> issue selection. Now, to be fair, they were all the popular titles. So yeah. it wasn't like you were going in there to get, you know, Cerebus or, or, or anything like that. But mm-hmm. they I, they had on the wall for the longest time, uh, all the way up until I actually moved from uh, Allentown to Atlanta, they had that Hawkman number one gold cover up on the wall the entire time. And that then I think yeah. nothing encapsulates how what was go what was going wrong with comics in the industry itself than a sporting goods store having Hawkman number one up on the wall. Yeah, and and I'm sure that it, I don't even know if he listens to this podcast, but if Luke Giaconetti is listening, he'll correct me on whether or not that was any good because I don't remember that. I had a few issues of that Hawkman series, probably the ones that were right around zero hour. And I don't remember them being particularly good. I remember them being very confusing. <laughs> I remember them being particularly good. It was good. weird. I read them years ago, and I cannot... It's funny. I read them like two or three years ago, and I can't remember a thing about them. Yeah. I, so, it's very strange. I, I, yeah, well, and and that's the thing. It's like all these, back in the very early 90s, around like 91, 92... Um, when people discovered that you could make money selling comics, there were all these upstart overnight comic stores. And it seemed that um, when they when they all started to, to fail, it was those are the ones that started to fail first. And the ones that stuck around were either people who were just very smart when they started the store and they were very patient or the kind of old guard of comic stores that were conservative when it came to things that were trendy. Um, the comic store that I went to uh, had opened in '84, so he was, you know, he would sell stuff like Image and Pogs and the superhero trading card sets and stuff like that. But I know he wasn't over ordering them, you know, because he wanted to make sure that he stayed in business I guess so I think he I think he just had a better he had a better um, kind of lock in the market he also had a lot of gold and silver age stuff that he um, you know bought sold and traded that I think also kept in the line and I think when when you talk about back issues for the newer places that was part of the problem too um, oh, you've talked about yeah you've talked about going to one day shows and uh, they used to have those around me like at the mall you know the one of the local malls or like you know some industrial park or wherever and and you know they'd have like people just with folding chairs and tables set up with baseball cards and comic books and back issues quote unquote barely went back beyond 1989 you know if i was trying to plug my jim lee x-men run holes, <laughs> i might be able to get something but if i wanted like a bronze age batman or uh, you know which were, or 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 maybe the wolfman perez teen titans which at that point nobody was collecting um, and I could get those books for like a buck fifty a piece. Nobody had them at those shows because they all had recent back issues. So that was it that was, was part of the problem. It was definitely a time. I have a video uh, that was put out like right around nineteen eighty nine. I have a v- mm-hmm. I found it years ago at this 
well, I, I, I won't tell where I found it because it's kind of an embarrassing story, but, uh, ah, well, ah, screw it. I'll tell it. There was this place called New York video here near where I live. This was back in 99 and they were, this, this involves pornography, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They, they were a porn shop. That's not why we went there. And, 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 and believe me, uh, it's not that I would be proud to say that I was going somewhere to buy porn, but I also wouldn't shy away from it, but they had, for some, whatever reason, this place had bought up all these mom and pop video stores inventory mm-hmm. so all of these vhs tapes from like the 80s were just sitting mm-hmm. there for like two bucks a piece so if you were looking for like an out of print video it may have had some wear on it but you would have found it at this place and they had these right around the time of the batman movie they put out these really cheap vhs tapes where somebody just put together a bunch of trailers for old serials and the trailer for the 1966 Batman film mm-hmm. and had some really like bad narration. And it was like, it was like the worst documentary you've ever seen, but they also have this <coughs> how to collect comics video hosted by Frank Gorsham and yeah, TV's Riddler and they interviewed people, and like I said, this was around 1988, 1989. So this is when the Batman film was coming out, and this is when comic shops really started catering more to the investors uh, mm-hmm. and, the, and the speculators that were coming in. And one of the guys that they interviewed, you know, they had obviously been in business for years, but they're like, you know, doctors and lawyers and all of them come in and they look to us for guidance and we tell them what books are going to be hot. And I'm just like, you are everything that was wrong with yeah. the industry at the time. Yeah. Cause, cause, um, the thing that had, the thing it had started right before the comic boom, boom was the baseball card. Boom. Yes. And, and for the life of me, I don't know why I taped it, but, and it's probably still at my parents' house at home is my VHS copy of Raiders that I taped off ABC. And before that, there was a segment on 2020 about the baseball collecting boom. This was from like 86. And um, one of the things they talked about was how like people were basically doing the same thing that they would do with comics like four years later, just gobbling up anything that looked valuable. And of course, it diluted the market. And the baseball card never market, market never really fully recovered. Um like even worse than the comic book market. But one of the things that, that if you look at it, that they were trying to get across was like the people who were making bank off of baseball cards are people who had ones that were rare and valuable because yeah. they were rare. Like, you know, you could make 50, 15 to 20 grand at the time off of a Mickey Mantle rookie card because it was a Mickey Mantle rookie card. The, the most valuable baseball card of all time is a 1910 Honus Wagner. And the reason is a, he was a hall of fame player rival to like Ty Cobb and B cards at that time, back in 1910 were put out by tobacco companies and Wagner was a um, vehement anti-smoker. So when he found out they were making the card, he had, he told them you have to stop production and they stopped production. So they only made so many, which is why it's worth probably in the in the high six, maybe even seven figures by now. But people would look at you know a rookie card for you know some random player who might have had a streak going, buy up five of them, and say this is going to be worth something someday. And now they're worth fifty cents. Yeah, the, <laughs> you know the, I mean? like, it, it's funny because 
during that time period of the late 80s going into all the way up to 94 i would say mm-hmm. you know not only did you have comic stores just kind of starting up because people th- could think they you know make some money off of enemy before that going back to where i grew up let, let me start there there were a dearth of comic book stores mm-hmm. in the area for you know the lehigh valley which is the third most densely populated area of pennsylvania you know the, the fact that there were a number of stores really shouldn't surprise me but it, it kind of does and, and i was really lucky when i got to be a teenager and had a vehicle where i could drive and go to other places that i had access to other comic shops now unfortunately for whatever reason all of the comic shops in the area had all the same back stock so once i had pretty much plundered what i was looking for I wasn't getting anything else. So, mm-hmm. but you had Beachhead Comics, which started in 1985. You had Caps Comics, which started around the same time period. There was a place <coughs> in the neighboring town Bethlehem called Dreamscape that actually opened up satellite stores uh, eventually huh. because they got that big. And of course, those closed up and it yeah. shrank back to one store. So you had all those guys, and then you had, you know, who had been in the business in the mid '80s when there weren't a whole lot of comic book shops, mm-hmm. when it was something that the devotees were doing because they loved it, and it was this growing, you know, phenomenon. And then by the end of the the '80s and into the '90s, they were just popping up everywhere. Not only did you have like the upstarts, and I'm not, and I don't want to call them upstarts because there were a couple places that I went to, especially the last comic shop I went to before I moved down here. I mean, they were two guys that did one day shows that event that in the summer of 93 finally opened up a shop. Uh-huh. And the only reason they survived as long as they did is they started wholesaling magic cards out of the back room huh. uh, in 94. So they were there when it hit. So they were able to keep the lights on. <laughs> Yeah. Just with the magic cards, basically. Yeah. That's so, something I never got into, but that that was a boom for quite a number of people for a while. But not only did you have the upstart stores, you had baseball cart shops and sporting goods stores starting to mm-hmm. sell the comics. Like I was saying yeah. before, I remember I was on a trip in nineteen in the summer of 1990 to, to my cousin uh, and my aunt and uncle's out in El Paso, Texas. And this is when I knew I was an addict because I was out there about two weeks and I realized I hadn't gotten a comic in a while and I really started feeling the shakes. I'm not kidding. I was sitting there in this pool going, I really want to buy some comics. And that's when I knew I had a problem. But the only place they, that uh, my cousin Jeff really knew of that sold comics was the place he bought his baseball cards. Mm-hmm. And they had a pretty good selection, don't get me wrong. I, I, I know you will not be surprised that they had a huge stack of the McFarlane Spider-Man number one sitting there. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Like, a giant stack of them. I remember that. And, uh, <coughs> got the first three issues of the Demon series that Alan Grant wrote from that store huh. as well. That was weird to find. But no, you, you, you had it, and it built up, and it built up, and Image Hits in 92... Yeah. Uh, and Valiant hits in 92. And it just gets even crazier. And Image and Valiant. Oh, Valiant's kind of the first to fall, too, because Valiant went. Valiant was like. I th- swear the philosophy was go big or go home with them. And uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a great, great post. Um, it's 
it's like a half dead link post, but but it was uh, the title of the post was called Comic Book Apocalypse, and it was a it was some blog had taken several different message board posts from someone who had been a comic um, like a one day show guy back in the in the early nineties, and he was just basically going through all of the things that he went through, and he mentioned somewhere toward the end of that that about it like the late nineteen ninety three, um, and and. I've heard your story about the uh, the infamous Turok dinosaur hunter number one, <laughs> yeah. with the guy throwing just long boxes of it into dumpsters, and um, the other one that people were holding. This is when people were starting to hold on to certain issues um, to hope, hopefully drive the price up, and then all of a sudden they'd have like five of them. Uh, was it was I think it was like Magnus Robot Fighter number twelve, which I think was one of the first appearances of Turok the dinosaur hunter. So it kind of all tied in and. When people were walking away from that show, not having sold the thing, because nobody cared anymore. Yeah, <laughs> that that's when it was like to him. He was like, "All right, you know." Luckily, I think his conclusion was, "Luckily, I uh, didn't sink as much money into this as I could have." Um, but the thing is, is like you know, you have image, and it's funny you mentioned Spider-Man number one because um, when we go online and we do like, you know, quote unquote research for episodes like this or, or just or just wanna <clears throat> read a good piece about comics history um in the nineties because it's it's documented and it's not documented. It seems that like whenever we have a documentary or a book about the comic book industry, we get a lot of stuff on the golden age, we get a lot of stuff on the silver age and to an extent the bronze age. And when they hit about 1979-80, they skip to, like, they'll hit Dark Knight, they'll hit Watchmen, and they'll hit, like, the Batman movies, and then they'll go, like, right to the present day. And they skip, like, two decades worth of stuff. Yeah. Um, Kind of in the way your history class when you were in high school, they would get to the recent history at the end of the year, but there were only, like, a week, there was only, like, a week left because you were so far behind that you never learned any history from the 80s or <laughs> Vietnam. Like, you barely learned about the Vietnam War because it was like, oh, crap, we're, we've got a state test of the week, and, you know. But it always annoyed me, and so there's bits and pieces collected here and there. I know there are some books, and the thing that always bugs me, and I know it bugs the hell out of you, is that most of these pieces that I've read point to Superman number 75 as being sort of this hallmark of this is this is what started it all. And I partially that's, blame that's, Todd. That's crap. That's, I partially that's complete and utter crap. I blame Todd McFarlane for that because of Spawn number 10, which is a whole other conversation. Spider-Man number one is the comic that you should point to because that's the one. Absolutely where it sold crazy numbers they put out like four variant cuz there was a there was a regular one there was a polybagged one there was the gold one there was the platinum one you know and then the next year there's X-Men number 1 and this is before they even come up with the idea for Doomsday you know like this is before this is back when they were still marching toward the wedding as far as Superman was concerned and um shit I got X-Men number 1 A through E five for a dollar at a comic show in 1993. Yeah. This was supposed to be like the big book and this broke all of these sales records. And so to point to Superman 75 and say, this is where it began. It's like, no, no, no. Granted the success of Superman 75 definitely inspired some other events, you know, 
It's not yeah. like the death and return of Superman is completely blameless um, as far as the speculators were concerned. But it's not a total money grab <laughs> the way, well, you know, he, he, here's the Emerald thing. Twilight was. <laughs> well, 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 here's the thing. To blame Superman number 75 for the collapse of comics is... I mean, I don't even really have a good comparison for it because it's what it, lazy. Yeah, well, yeah. What it shows is a shocking uh, lack of of research. Because one, and and maybe maybe it's because I'm so close to this because I did so much research into the death of Superman around the time we were covering it on From Crisis to Crisis, where yeah. I tracked down the guy that wrote the Newsday article <laughs> that basically started the media frenzy. I remember uh, that article too, and, and very. <laughs> Very sad to find out that he had passed away a year before. And then I felt really guilty going, man, I'll never be able to interview him. Not, oh my God, for his family and friends and, you know, everyone that ever cared about him. No, I won't be able to talk to this guy. What a jackass I am. But but what it shows is a, is a shocking lack of knowledge of what was going on in the Superman books at the time. Uh, about a yeah. year or two before that, uh, Jerry Ordway, uh, in an interview with us, uh, related that they had this huge event that they had planned at this comic shop in Connecticut where they were going to have all like a bunch of the Superman people there uh, to time it with just right after Dark Knight, on Metro- Dark Knight over Metropolis. And basically it was like, you know, you know, like the nerdy kid who threw the si- Sweet 16 party and no one came. Yeah. So I remember I remember that interview. And they were, you know, they were doing everything <coughs> they could to try to get interest. They were, like you said, they were going to marry them. Superman, either Superman number 75 or Adventures 500. I have seen both cited in official channels. One of those was going to be the wedding. And they had planned a year worth of stories to lead up to that. Because that's how the Superman books worked at the time. So then they were told, no, you can't do that because there's going to be a television series. So Mm -hmm. they, they fell back on Jerry Ordway's joke, let's kill him, and actually did it. When the news hit... Of the death of Superman. They didn't want it that out there. Yeah. Because they were afraid people were going to run to comic shops and see a story about Superman dealing with domestic abuse. And 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 what was funny was that my friend Harris, who I collected comics with for, for years, and I went to the comic store the day after that story was published because Newsday was our newspaper. And he... Bob, who ran Amazing Comics and recently retired, was smart enough to post something right on the wall, right by the counter. This is when the death of Superman is coming out. If you'd like to pre-order, this is what you know. This is the pre. This is how to pre-order it. So, like, again, that was a smart comic shop owner who knew people were gonna who had never ever set foot in the store were gonna be coming in because they saw the story on the news. And that right. story, that story, so DC didn't want the article to happen. They did it anyways. Mm-hmm. Then, as Mark Wade w- joked in the, one of the documentaries, I think it's the, the one that came out in 2006, as luck would have it, nothing else in the world happened that day. <laughs> and it, and I, I mean, even in the morning call, which was the Allentown paper, it was, <laughs> I had just gotten done watching that's the worst grammar ever. I just finished <laughs> watching uh, the Cat in the Claw two-parter of Batman the Animated Series that they premiered, that they previewed that Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And I just gotten done watching that, 
and it went over to the paper. So this is Labor Day weekend. Went over to the paper, opened up the morning call, boom, Superman's going to die. So it hit, and it became a sensation. (coughs) And DC had two choices. Ignore this, or try to ride this to its natural conclusion. So the death of Superman itself was not planned the way people think it was. Adventures of Superman number 500 was. Yes. So when you say they're not entirely blameless, you, you, you're, you're kind of right. But an Adventures 500 is what I would turn to in that case. But it wasn't but, Turok Dinosaur Hunter number one. <laughs> to be fair, it completely ignores one, like you said, Spider-Man number one. Mm-hmm. It ignores X Force and X Men number one, yes, and it ignores and it ignores the entire summer of '92 when Image was rolling out, starting in April with Young Blood, and then in mm-hmm. May with um, Savage Dragon. Uh, Spawn came out. In Spawn because okay. I bought that. I bought Spawn number one and Batman Shadow of the Bat number one from the same newsstand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, Wild Savage Dragon and then Wildcats. I mean, it, it, it it's just totally unfair to blame just this one thing. It was what Superman 75 was, was the last gasp at the party. Mm-hmm. It was the last time it was fun. Because as great as Reign of the Superman was, and as good of a story as it was, and as good of a story as Nightfall was... Mm-hmm. And all that, you, it was really kind of tainted by 93. Because yeah. everyone had started getting the sour taste in their mouths. Yeah. Over and... people ordering hundreds of copies of a book <coughs> and just sitting on it and then losing their shirts because yeah. of it. And, and to be fair, death, funeral, and rain are a pretty tight story. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't appreciate Funeral for a Friend until um, I reread it years later. Uh, probably because at fifteen, yeah, fifteen years old, I just didn't. I, you know, who was a fifteen-year-old kid who was collecting that, but I was also buying Batman and, and, and X Men and stuff. I wanted to see, you know, more action, and this was a lot of drama. Um, and I, I didn't really appreciate Rain for what it was as a story until. Um, I, a reread because of the fact that I was, I think I was a little too focused on which one of these guys was Superman and trying to figure it out, which I'm sure a lot of people, you know, were doing at the time, but Nightfall and not Nightfall, but Night Quest is a lot messier. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Night's End. Night's End is, is a downer and, and part of that has to do with zero hour and there's a whole, there's a whole other thing. And then, like I said, this year, this is the year of, um, Hal Jordan losing his 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 uh, his mind, um, and and if you weren't sure, because you know Jeff Johns doesn't mention that he was parallax every third panel. <laughs> the only uh, like I have everything. I have like two more Blackest Night trades to collect, and then that's it. I don't have to debt anything else because I had collected all these Blackest all these Green Lantern trades. And I sat on getting Blackest Night, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to get Blackest Night just to complete it. And it's actually not a bad story, but I'm just like, I'm, no, I'm, I'm glad not I'm not terrible. putting money, more money into this. It's not good, but it's not No, it's, it could have been 
better. So that's a again, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> the disappointments that are that are stories by Jeff Johns. <laughs> the man cannot finish. Let me just say that. Um, but yeah, this year is like um, ninety four is is like you said. Yeah, Superman seventy five is what December of ninety two. November, uh, December November, of ninety two, November, November ninety two. So by by the time you have ninety three roll around, that yeah, that's the big, that is the big like flare out. By the end of ninety three, things are inflated, devalued. The market is. I mean, if you look at just you go onto one page for like ninety three and early ninety four on on Mike's Amazing World, you just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll to <laughs> see the number of titles. I mean, characters that should not have had series were getting series like. Um, Death's Head and 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 some of these over at Marvel, um, you know, uh, Darkhawk and things like that. And you're like, you know, how does this person have an ongoing? And and DC was was uh, was guilty of that too. They were trying to push the Bloodlines characters <laughs> for a good couple of years, you know, and. Um, and then everything bottoms out, and and it starts with Image and Valiant, Valiant especially, because Valiant by the end of '94 will have been bought out by acclaim. Mm-hmm. Um, and Image is still holds on. Image is still around, obviously. You're at a completely different company. Um, the Top Cow stuff is still there. And and if if you're if you're a new a current comics reader and you want to see anything like Image was like back in 1993, look at kind of the current solicitations for. I don't know if Witchblade's still around, but like you know anything that like Top Cow is putting out under the Image banner, that's what it was like. It wasn't The Walking Dead. It wasn't. Um, uh, well, I don't know if they do powers anymore, but like you know the the sort of it wasn't an indie comics company. It was very much like you know big guns, big tits, lots of pockets, leather jackets, and that sort of stuff. <laughs> and Image's problem, Image's problem wasn't just that, and it wasn't the fact that Rob Liefeld couldn't write a complete sentence, let alone a comic or, or, or any of that stuff. It's the fact that they could not get their books out on time and it, well, and it killed people because they would be waiting months and months and months and they'd lose money on something like a death meat red or something like that because they couldn't ship them on time or they couldn't get the deadlines met. So. Well, it, it's, it's funny because the, uh, where to start? Um, yeah, I know. Because <laughs> the one thing we really didn't mention in all of that was Wizard Magazine as well. Oh, I was... Uh, which which, which, which <laughs> launched in 91. But no, but, you know, Image... It wasn't It wasn't just the lateness. It was just, I think, people were seeing that the quality of the books wasn't, wasn't there. I mean, if you yes. read the first 30 issues of Spawn, it's not a bad title. No. Uh, and, and Todd managed to keep his books churning along but you had all of these you know er, kids in their early 20s mm-hmm. which i can say now because i just turned 38 uh th- these kids in their early 20s that had no idea how to run a business much less a comic book company you know it was all well and good to sit there and want to keep all the money from your, uh, you know, from your creations. Yeah, and, that and, was... they, and they were making bank too. 
that's the other thing. This wasn't like some little, this wasn't like Terry Moore running, you know, um, whatever the heck the name, Antarctic Press or whatever he runs so they can publish Strangers in Paradise. This is like, they're making hundreds, they're making yeah. like six, seven figures. Yeah, millions of dollars. Yeah. Because, but then you're also having to handle licensing meetings and mm-hmm. you're having to handle the Hollywood meetings. And it just distracted them. I mean, you listen to Rob Liefeld talk about it. We can, you can, we can pick on his work all you want. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he's been kind of vocal about what it was like. And Jim Lee, I have a book that Tomorrow's put out that is the most biased uh, biography of image <laughs> I have ever read in my entire life. If if I if I'm going by what the author, the guy who put the book together. Uh, is selling is that Image Comics was the most important thing to ever happen to comics. And to be fair, it was important, but it wasn't like the second coming because, you know, you said Image is completely different today than what it was in 19, you know, in 1994. And that's absolutely right. Image today is basically what they said they were going to be in 1992. Yeah. Uh, they said we are going to be a place where creators can come and put out their product under the image logo. They keep all the rights. We take a percentage and it's basically for people to get their creator owned works out there. What they were really saying is we're going to go off and do everything we've been doing at Marvel and we're going to keep all the money, which more power to them. And to be fair, one of those guys, Eric Larson I have nothing against him. He went off and he said, I wanted to draw, I want to draw superheroes beating the crap out of each other. And he has made a career out of doing that. He's been, he's been, he was the most, I've never really read Savage Dragon, but from what I've gathered, he was the most consistent and he was the most realistic in terms of, you know, his own limitations in terms of what he put together. And you're right. He's just like, this is what the book's going to be. And I'm, and he got it out. He got it out on a consistent basis. Like you talked about spawn spawn and savage dragon, I think were the only two titles that more or less came out on time for, for the first couple of years of image. And yeah, Larson just, he's still plugging away. I think. Oh yeah, it's definitely. I mean, uh, the, he, he recently last year, I bought them. I have not read them yet, uh, but I got them at a pretty cheap price. He, uh, he started up Supreme again. Life oh, really? character. Uh, which is just kind of fascinating in and of itself. But no, it's just, you, you, and then you had Valiant and Valiant, you know, we, we, we've kind of danced around it, but it was, it was interesting. It was this company that I don't know if Jim Shooter started it or they hired Jim Shooter. It depends on who you talk to. If I, I don't, th- it's been a while since Shooter has posted anything to his blog, but for a little while there he was, talking about the early days of Valiant. Now, it, this is Jim Shooter we're talking about here. So in his mind, he is responsible for it. He's responsible for all these things, you know, that that came out his wake. And, and the, the value of his blog, though, is that um, his assistant, who's uh, Janet Jackson, uh, posts a bunch of memos and, uh, and and other kind of, you know, stuff that Shooter just obviously held on to because he's a hoarder or whatever he is. And that at least gives you a little bit more of an objective look at things or, oh, yeah. you know, kind of like the artifacts and things like that. But, you know, you have to take some of what he says with a grain of salt in the same way that you that some of these other guys in the industry, Neil Adams, for instance, 
who who is again who is responsible for a lot, but will will never ever never hesitate to toot his own horn, and you know and and so but but from what I understand, it was like Shooter and Bob Layton were the driving force between behind Valiant in his very early years, and then Shooter got forced out eventually. Well, and Valiant was fascinating because they basically took up these properties from Gold Key Comics, mm-hmm. you know, Solar Man of the Atom, and and it's funny because uh, a couple months ago I, I interviewed uh, Richard Rowan of Graphic mm-hmm. Audio, and he was telling me his comic book origin story, and he says I couldn't find anything decent, so I bought Solar. So that basically gives you an idea of the people, the kids that were buying comics at the time, what they really thought of these books. And I remember they also they also got the rights to to uh, Magnus Robot Fighter, and I remember reading an article about that in Comic Scene in '91, and my uncle Kelly uh, saying, "Oh, I remember that book from when I was a kid." So, you know, they they were these properties that were no longer around, and they did kind of what Eclipse Comics did in the '80s. Uh, which was take books that had either fallen in the public domain or that they could buy the rights to cheaply and retool them. And because of the the rise of Image Comics Val- and, 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 and with Wizard Magazine talking about them, oh, yeah. Valiant became a player. And in 92, it was Valiant versus Image, especially at like the San Diego Comic-Con. Who was going to reign supreme? Yeah. And by the next year, Shooter was out. He had gone off to start Defiant with Warriors which, of Plasm, whose which, first issue was a trading card set, which I bought on eBay for five dollars. Now, when I say whose zero bought, issue, whose zero issue, by the way, was stuck in an issue of previews. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, when I say I bought the set for five dollars, I actually mean I bought an entire box. <laughs> Of the Warriors of Plasm cards for five dollars back in two thousand two. Ten with shipping. Oh, okay, so it was like five bucks to ship it to me. But still, I mean, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> so Defiant and Defiant burned out quickly. Um, there were a couple other comic companies that closed. Continuity Comics, which I think was Neil Adams. That was Neil Adams' uh, co- company, and they tried to do their big—I uh, forget what it was called—but they had a big crossover that yeah, went nowhere. That went and, nowhere. And by 94, the Ultraverse, which was the writer's response to mm-hmm. to Image, where they got a bunch of, like, Steve Englehart and Steve Gerber yes. and James Robinson and uh, Marv Wolfman and all that. And even that kind of fractured off uh, from Ultraverse to, like, the Bravera mm-hmm. uh, line in Imprint. Yeah. And then Dark Horse got in on the action with the World's Greatest Hero line, plus yes. you had Next Men... And uh, what was that? And eventually, um, Frank Miller doing Sin City. Yeah. And, so, and Mignola was doing Hellboy. And it was just this fascinating time. And it was also by 94, you had like the diehard superhero fans versus, and, and I'm not trying to insult anybody here, I am speaking in generalizations. And as we all know, generalizations are always bad. Mm-hmm. But. You had the kind of, you know, diehard superhero fans versus the pretentious Vertigo fans. <sighs> and the ones reading all the independent. And when I say independent, I don't mean image. I mean, they, like. They were know, reading serum. graphic novels. <laughs> yeah, and, th- and that kind of stuff. So 
you know, by '94, it was this. It was this amazing playing field. Yeah. And this is where everything started to fall apart because you mentioned this in 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 the the first episode you did for this year, mm-hmm. and I will always appreciate you for saying this because it's something <laughs> I've been touting for years. What people think of when they say comics in the '90s, they are thinking of a very narrow time period. Of a 10 year period. Yes. They're thinking of the 91, I'll even go up to like 95. Because mm-hmm. I think 95 was the last gasp for the, as you said it, you know, pouches and big guns and big tits and all that kind of thing. Is is 95 Onslaught? Uh, no, 96 is Onslaught. Slot. But I think the turnaround in 96 was Kingdom Come, Come and then Grant Morrison's JLA. Yeah, Kingdom Come and and the series that I remember getting at the same time that I loved was uh, the just the thing that kicked off Grant Morrison's JLA, Justice League, A Midsummer's Nightmare, mm-hmm. which I just thought was a incredibly fun series to read, especially since the Justice League books after Jan, Dan Jurgens leaves, um, really up until about 96 or terrible it was it was terrible it was an awful series of books i mean justice league task force was interesting Mm -hmm. but that's because they went from it being the rotating creator rotating cast of heroes book Uh to martian manhunter training the next generation of justice leaguers okay and you had the ray and you had vixen and impulse and Christopher Priest eventually started writing the book, and it became something really interesting. Whereas with Extreme Justice and all that, it was just this mis- mishmash of DC finally trying to catch up with what Marvel had been doing three years before and kind of failing miserably at it. Uh, and I say that as a fan of, of the company at this time period, especially especially in 94. And, and DC, DC was behind the curve on a lot of this, but I think in the end it helped save them a little bit oh, yeah. because they didn't suffer as much. I mean, and you're talking to somebody who who read the Titans all the way up until the end, <laughs> which was, but um, because I'm I'm I am in the middle of right now. Sometimes you still wake up screaming. I, I do sometimes. No, I was um. I'm that series of blog posts I'm doing, even though I collected the Titans all the way up until the new 52, I'm ending it with like the end of the new Titans because it really, that really is the end of an era for me. And I'll probably do a follow up post, but I'm reading that it was the siege of Z Charam or whatever. It's a <laughs> six part crossover between. I like, cannot find that dark stars issue to save my life. I bought it off the stand. And, and some of those books go for a little bit of money because they were low print runs, but mm-hmm. but um man that was like I heard um Sean Engel do it uh, a number of weeks months ago on just one of the guys, and I had I think he did it with Thomas DJ and and I and I hadn't read that in like God 15, 10, 15 years and so I read it like a couple weeks ago so that I could prep a blog post about it and I was like this is unreadable. And and I think it was because the art was passable that I gave it a pass back in 1995. But you know, yeah, I mean, there were some real low quality books that DC put out. But for a while there, in like 92 and 93, it seemed that they were containing it to like annual and quarterly 
uh-huh. books and like showcase. Like there are some of those Eclipse of the Darkness within crossovers where the story is good, but the art is just horrible. And same thing with Bloodlines, where even the stories in some of the Bloodlines books aren't that very good, but but the art is like, you know, here's the latest image knockoff guy. Do you like him? For a while, they had like Travis Cherist, mm-hmm. um, who was very Jim Lee-esque, and then he went over to uh, Image. And so they'd put Cherist on as many covers as they could. I think that's how they sold some Dark Stars issues at the beginning, because he was doing... It's how they sold, uh, what was that? storyline called that crossed over with dark stars legion and Green trinity legion. trinity war mm-hmm. i believe it was God, it was, it was trinity it was trinity i think yeah, it was trinity straight war. up trinity awful. yeah that was that and that that was right before emerald emerald twilight uh-huh. and that was a that i remember because i bought the whole thing um because I was, I really liked Green Lantern and I liked the kind of, I was like, I liked the sci-fi aspect of it. But that was like one of those really, when when Star Trek or especially Star Trek The Next Generation would get like too dense for its own good in an episode or two. And you were just like, what am I watching here? And that's kind of how that felt, um, remembering that anyway. It was like all this political gamesmanship among all these people and you're just like, can you fight a villain <laughs> you know well it, it's kind of funny because if you're going to look at the the big two uh even mm-hmm. though everyone considered image to be you know as the big three by that point but if you look at the big two and kind of ignore image marvel was basically coasting through 1994 mm-hmm. uh it, it is fair to say that marvel was the lead dog in comics throughout the 90s uh, with DC really coming in at the end of that decade and kind of one-upping them, at least in terms of having better writing mm-hmm. than anything else. But you had and, the X-Men, mm-hmm. which were the most popular heroes in all of comics, I would say. You had you know two main X-Books, you had <coughs> a bunch of satellite books, and they were all kind of going along on their you know, pretty much coasting off of the success that Jim Lee brought to it. Even after he left, the books didn't sell badly. No. Uh, you know, they managed to find some artists like Andy Kubert uh, to come on, and, and Greg Capullo and all that yeah. to come on to the books and kind of keep that kind of high energy. And you had Fabian Nicieza and Scott Lobdell writing the tough guy dialogue. Fabian Nicieza was better at it. Than, yeah. than, than Lobdell in my opinion and based on that success Marvel was able to kind of just go through 1994 like nothing could touch it and you could tell that by you know at the end of uh, <laughs> I think it was the end of 93 that Wolverine lost the adamantium it, it's somewhere it's a, it's in it's in an issue of X-Men X Men twenty five. Yes, because it's fa- it's a fatal fatal attractions issue. It has Which a hologram. It has a hologram wraparound cover. Yeah, and and then the Wolverine issue from that same storyline is him dealing 75. with that. Yeah, yeah. And so. then so when you get into ninety four and the Phalanx Covenant being mm. the big storyline and the launch of Generation X, you know you yes. can touch these guys, whereas DC. DC's turnaround was zero hour. 
Mm-hmm. In, in all honesty, when Zero Hour hit, and the, <coughs> and the and as we're you know going through the Superman books, you can kind of start to see the '90s start cracking into DC, especially with Bloodsport, the 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 second Bloodsport that they introduced. Yeah, uh, towards the end of '93 into the beginning of '94, and there was. I mean, one, his name was Bloodsport. Now, to be fair, there was a Bloodsport before that. Uh, but this guy was literally raining blood down in the pages of Adventures of Superman. Somebody at DC really liked that Van Damme movie. <laughs> hey, come on. You have Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds I... as his sidekick. I mean, how can you go wrong? Got it that? on VHS, man. <laughs> I, yeah, it's it's a great... Di- I, I say this in all sincerity, it's a great <laughs> disappointment that when one of the independent theaters here in Atlanta showed that last year that I didn't get to go see it on the big screen. But, um... But it was really Zero Hour uh, mm-hmm. that kind of changed things. DC was doing interesting things, though. Yeah. You know, because Marvel, Marvel had the, 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 the Marvel UK stuff. And you mentioned uh, Death's Head yeah. and all that. You know, that had really hit in, like, 93 and was still kind of going strong in 94. You also had the Clive Barker stuff that Marvel was putting out, like mm-hmm. Ectokind and stuff like that. That I remember seeing at the Seven Eleven of all places, and so you had that. But but DC had things like the Milestone Universe, yes, which was a fascinating group of books, where they you know they got tagged with being the black superheroes, but it really wasn't about that. It was just a more ethnically diverse, without doing it as part of a political movement, basically. Uh, you know, th- these are heroes in a more "quote unquote" realistic world, Ooh. and uh, '94 was where I first got to know some of these characters because they crossed over with the Superman titles. Those worlds collide, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, well D- DC was very good at diversifying its line early. Vertigo was what '92, and '92, '93, somewhere yeah. in there is where it it became officially Vertigo. Yeah. And they'd had Paradox Press um, for a little while, which is which was publishing, you know, the Big Book of Urban Legends, the Big Book of Death, and some other kind of offbeat stuff. And eventually, they bought. Um, uh, well, they were putting out the Warner cartoon books for kids, and they were also. Um, I think by then they had bought Mad Magazine, um, so they had, and that was the other thing between DC and Marvel is that DC had the power of Warner Brothers behind it in terms of the money. Marvel makes this huge mistake financially in 94 in that it gets into a pissing contest with the distributors yep. and buys Heroes World and for the for the next couple of years tries to distribute its own books and fails miserably to the point where that's one of the reasons that and a number of other reasons but that's one of the big reasons that the company had to declare bankruptcy um and and I think the rise of DC in 96, 97 partially stems from them taking advantage of Marvel when it was down, you know, and, and in, in, in addition to other things, seeing the creative forces they had, seeing good ideas, you know, putting things like kingdom come out and, you know, 
fostering like Starman and and other and, and other series where you had quality creative stuff coming out because that's what the audience was looking for. But you know, Marvel being down on its luck had to have been a factor in that. And it was it started here because it's one thing to produce comics, it's another thing to distribute them directly, and they just were in way over their head with it. Um Marvel Comics. Well, also, there's the the horse trading of toy biz and all that. I haven't read yeah. all of Comic Book War, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's kind of a fascinating read to see how Marvel buying a toy company and then the toy company ended up owning Marvel, uh, which is why you have still have to a certain extent uh, Avi Arad mm-hmm. still involved in the movies because he was you know part of toy biz and. Suddenly, Toy Biz was running Marvel, and if you know anything about Marvel <coughs> in the 90s, they had a couple successful animated series on Fox, which led to the toy shelves being glutted with Marvel product for years. Uh, my wife had uh, has, and it's sitting on Brett's shelf, a one of those 12-inch Wolverine action figures that Toy Biz put out around 95, 96, right around the time that the X-Men cartoon was pretty big. Um, but Is he yeah. the one that talks? No. No, it's not. Okay. That. I had the one that talks. <laughs> A friend gave it to me. I've got claws. I can use them. <laughs> some of that stuff, man. Wow. I've, <laughs> I, I, there's some stuff from the 90s in terms of toys where I'm, I'm almost glad that I wasn't a, a kid. Because some of the stuff from the eighties is uh, some of the stuff in the eighties is just as bad, but I don't know. I, I still think we had better toys. Um, but uh, yeah, but you know, I, I look at what Marvel put out, and then I think of the Visionaries, the Knights of the Magical Light, Visionaries with magical powers they fight. Uh, and I and I think maybe you know I'm living in a glass house and I'm tossing stones at the walls. Probably. Um, but yeah, Marvel, um, the, the business deals behind some of these big media conglomerates are always interesting. One of the ones, there's a, Tom Shells did a book about ESPN a couple of years ago, about a year ago. It's it's extremely boring. But um, one of the funniest parts about it is that um, there's bits and pieces that are interesting. One of the more interesting pieces is that when, when, um, when ESPN and ABC lost the rights to Monday Night Football, uh, they didn't lose the rights. They 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 uh, they had to give up the primetime show, and NBC started broadcasting football on Sunday night. Al Michaels, if you're unfamiliar with Al Michaels, is uh, a play-by-play announcer. He was the one who uh, did the uh, called the 1980 U.S. Olympic Hockey. Do you believe in miracles? He and John Madden were the team for Monday Night Football, and uh, Madden, I think his contract is up, and he went to NBC and they were trying to get Michaels out of his contract to go to NBC. Now I'm pretty sure they gave him some money, but the one thing that ABC who was owned by Disney wanted that NBC who was owned by Universal had was the rights to Oswald the rabbit, which Scott Gardner will know who Oswald the rabbit is. Oswald the rabbit is one of Disney's Walt Disney's creations before he created Mickey Mouse. Well, Universal Studios owned it. So they traded Al Michaels for Oswald the Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> it's little things like that that make some of this stuff interesting. It's like, um, if have you read Marvel Comics, The Untold Story yet? You know, I want to. I have it. Uh, okay, because if you, if you don't have it, Scott sent me a PDF copy. And yeah, I... Uh, 
Paul Spataro yeah. sent me one. The, the The problem with one with reading that is uh, I have gotten to this uh, saturation point with learning, yeah, the behind the scenes shenanigans. Hey Farva, what's the name of that place that you like with all the shit on the walls and the cheese sticks? Shenanigans. Eat a shenanigans. Enjoy your food. Eat a shenanigans. Calvin works here. Um. I my, my sat I have reached my saturation point for mm-hmm. that because it's it, it's just getting to the point where it's just depressing <laughs> that some of my favorite Marvel stories have like the most base infighting ever behind them, and it's like, do I really want to know that, or you know, do I want to go down that particular rabbit hole? The you know? the the one interesting thing I will say though is that the stories behind the number of times Marvel changed hands during the mm-hmm. 1980s and 1990s are, are interesting because it seems to get more and more nuts because the people who were buying this company had nothing to do with comics. And no, you, you, would... you, you had, they went public in 92, which yeah. was a huge deal. Yes. And really the success with the success of, of the X-Men <clears throat> and that sort of to- storytelling was still prevalent at this point because they were not, so much beholden to the readers they were beholden to their shareholders yeah and yeah the the number of times that like you said that that company was bought out by people who knew jack all about the comic book industry and were basically just buying intellectual properties you know it's it's just kind of fascinating i mean i'm not saying that there weren't any kind of weird going behind the scenes stuff going on at dc because i'm sure there was but at least you had the consistency of being owned by one company yeah and and so they were kind of protected to a certain extent by warner brothers and i think where you get into kind of that messy area with dc is when it comes to licensing yeah. Uh, and some of the movies too, because the the movies, the the DC movies from the '90s, and you know from from reading about like the v- several attempts to get a Superman movie off the ground, no pun intended, um, the Batman debacle of the mid '90s, you know, and, and late '90s, and, and and some of these things, um, that's where the drama comes in. But the actual comics publishing really doesn't have the, you know, because you also have consistent leadership at the top. Yes, because Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitz are there for most, if not all, of the decade. Mm-hmm. And you um, had Dick Giordano there for a little yeah. while. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that it, it was an interesting time for DC because Superman was still extremely popular, mm-hmm. and you know, rightly so because they were doing some good stories. I know that Max Landis in his video says that you know people felt betrayed after coming on to the Superman books and all that. That's just that's just horseshit. That's not yeah. that's not how it was. I, I watched it happen. You know, the you know, the people left starting in ninety five, but to be fair, the stories started to go into kind of weird directions in nineteen ninety five. Max so, Land Max Landis is that guy you invite to the party who overdoes it in trying to get to know everybody. Like, you know, <laughs> who's like who's like make like you know how like you sit there with your friends and you rib each other about stuff and, and, and all that. And, and Max Landis is the guy who jumps and starts insulting your friend because you were doing it. And he thinks, Oh, I can insult this guy. It's like, no dude, you haven't known him for 10 years the way I have. You know, so that's Max Landis. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and he's the guy, you know, a little bit younger than both of us that, you know, read all this stuff in hindsight. Yeah. That's there's true a difference. Too. 
and, and you know, I can read the Burn X Men right now. I have no idea what it was like to read that stuff as, as it was coming out. I don't know the no. cultural impact it had. I just know it, you know, from you know, like it, like in a history book. But living through 1994 and, and going from just reading one family of titles to after Zero Hour reading nearly all of the Batman books. Mm-hmm. The only two I didn't read were Legends of the Dark Knight and Catwoman. I, so, did, I didn't read either of those unless they crossed over into something. Yeah. So, yeah, if Catwoman was like... And, in, and in, I, would drop, I would drop Batman when Kelly Jones started penciling. <laughs> um, for years, I'm not kidding, because I'll go through like looking at Mike's Amazing World for years, Detective was the only Bat book, like Batman, Batman book, aside from Robin and Nightwing that I was buying on a regular basis. And the reason it was, it was Chuck Dixon yeah, and Graham Nolan. And, and he had some great pencilers, but yeah, it was the Batman writers. Nothing against Doug Mensch, but it's just not my preference for a Batman writer. I do enjoy some Alan Grant though. I'll well, give you that. It's funny because you know, when I was younger and reading comics, I, I had a lot of Marvel books, but because mm-hmm. I started reading the Superman books and have that lifelong affair with Batman uh, that still goes on to this day, you know, I've always been more of a DC kid. So mm-hmm. in the summer of 94, I had to do this six-week college study skills course because I was one of those guys that was kind of smart but had no way of applying myself. So I did I, something I, I did something similar in the summer of 95 as a two-week um, foreign language course so that I could retake the placement test and test in a higher level of foreign language so I didn't have to take French for more than a couple of semesters. So well, well, kind the of thing, there. <laughs> the funny thing was is that I just I just completely wasted my time in high school I'm not proud of it but i but I'll, I'll cop to the fact that i did it and because of that you know i had to take this uh, i had to take these placement tests mm-hmm. to get into kutztown university and and the, the 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 upside was uh you know yeah i'd be going to school for six weeks in the summer but i'd also be taking a credited english course i took comp 101 over the summer got an A in it, so I walked into my freshman year of college with a 4.0 grade average. Cool. Um, that would not stay that way, <laughs> because I, you know, because it's not like that suddenly let me, I learned how to apply myself better. However, however, uh, during that summer, it was really weird, because Zero Hour hit in, like, July or August. And... Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly, I'm picking up all these books I didn't really pick up before. I'd been picking up Superboy because of Worlds Collide. So I continued with that, and I started picking up Flash. Uh, right before I graduated high school that year, I walked into my local comic shop, Comic Quest, which was in Emmaus, and Green Lantern 51 and 52 were on the shelf. So I got right in on the ground floor of Kyle Rayner. And it was right when Night's End had wrapped up, and during Zero Hour, I started buying the Batman books. Yeah. And I continued after that, which was a great time to jump into the Batman books. I know you were kind of at your saturation point at that point. I, I was on the complete other end of that spectrum. Yeah, and that's why I, um, I, I to this day, I enjoyed Prodigal, but even in the reread when I covered it for the podcast, I was like... 
it, it always feels like it's missing something or that it should have happened earlier or, you know, whatever we can, we can say about that, even though it's a pretty solid storyline. But, uh, but yeah. And, and like I said, I dropped down to like maybe one and I, I hadn't oversaturated on Robin. I think it was just all the, all the Batman stuff. Cause you know, I was buying every Batman title for a little bit because of Knight's quest and then Knight's yeah, end. Kind of had to. But <laughs> yeah, I know. No, so, so, you know, I had taken my, you know, Luke Skywalker putting on the blast shield and almost feeling when the thing was going to shoot at him. It was my first step into a larger world. And that only got worse as time goes on. But that's why 1994 to me is so important because on, on, on a personal level, it's when I graduated high school. I had gone through a pretty traumatic experience in December of 93, mm-hmm. which kind of bled into uh, 94, which is really uh-huh. funny too, to, 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 to think about and, and watch what's going on in the Northeast and we're in like your neck of the woods where oh. you guys are getting dumped on, with snow every couple of weeks and that's exactly what happened in 1994 it's yep. like a dramatic replay of that and i graduate I, I had to graduate high school three weeks late because we had to make up those days i i um i'm, I'm off again tomorrow because of uh, the snow we got the other day and um i was telling my students before we got out we were talking about they were like did you you know did you have a lot of snow days when you were in school and i said well i'm from you know you guys know I'm from New York. They're like, yeah, I said, my, now this had to do with the fact that my, the school districts up where I'm from are, are organized by locality and where I teach now they're organized by County. So the school districts are much bigger here, but my school district, Sable did not have a snow day for eight years um, from the time. And then in my 11th grade year, we had like five because of all that snow you know, 93 mm-hmm. to 94. And I have this story and I'm not kidding because it sounds so much like an old man. We were having midterms and the way midterms ran in my high school is that you only had to show up for your test. You didn't have to stay in school the whole day. And I could, I usually took the best bus, but I could also walk. So I was walking to school and I'm not kidding. The snow's coming down and there's a good six inches of snow on the ground. And my friend drives up. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I got a midterm exam. He's like, yeah, they've closed school. I'm like, he's like, get in, I'll give you a ride. I was like, okay. And I was only a few blocks from my house, but so I have the uphill and the snow both ways story <laughs> to tell. And my kids are just I mean, like, so, <laughs> you know, graduating late and then, yeah. you know, getting, going to college pretty much immediately after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll never forget too the, one of the RAs in my dorm that I stayed in. It's my only dorm experience and those six weeks were enough to let me know that I never really ever wanted to stay in a dorm again because I, I had a roommate that, um, oh my God, the stories I could tell um, of, the, of the cops showing up in the middle of the night looking for him and, 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 and him urinating into the heating duct and, and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, it's it was... a wonder I survived four years. It's a wonder my roommates survived four years of living with me. But what I would do is I'd go to class Monday through Friday, and then mm-hmm. Friday afternoon after the last class, I'd jump in my car and go back to where I was living with my friend at the time. We were sharing his basement because my dad had moved to Georgia by then because I, I was out of high school, and he was kind of at the end of his rope, so he went to live with his parents. Um, 
down here in Georgia. So, and I would go, it was always funny. I'd go from school to the comic shop. I'd pick up my books. I'd go back to my place, meet up with my friends and just spend the weekend reading books and, and going out with my girlfriend and hanging out with my friends and stuff. And then going back to school with the comics that I had bought. So it was really funny that a lot of my memories of, of that college experience, in addition to, to the classes, which I remember, and our, uh, the, the, the woman that taught the study skills course, who was in her early 20s, and uh, really dressing inappropriately to be around a bunch of 18-year-old men, uh, males that were on their own for the first time. Yeah, that she... She had some some issues. You're 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 a Law and Order fan, so you'll understand what I mean when I say my the, I took a class on Chaucer, and my professor looked like Jill Hennessy. Oh wow! It was very distracting. <laughs> no, the, this this woman looked like Elizabeth Berkeley from uh, Showgirls. So that that was the kind of the problem, and she she wore very tight fitting clothing. And and apparently, from what I understand, because I never really took part in the social scene, uh, hung out at all the parties. So she was she was obviously you know wrapped really tight. But you know, I, I, I just you said showgirls Elizabeth Berkeley, and I'm just thinking of that scene in the pool. Yeah, yeah kind of. Um, I know it's not like this because your memory is always different. Her hair is always teased in my memories, and I know that wasn't the case, but. Um, the only other annoying thing about that was uh, the math. I had to take a, a math course because uh, I've always kind of struggled with math uh, just because I don't apply myself. And, and, mm. and the, the, the professor wrote our textbook. Oh, God. Uh, so, we had to sit, so we had to sit there and listen to the behind-the-scenes shenanigans of him getting this uh, textbook written, which I really, you know, I could get, you know, j- j- just teach me how to multiply fractions and I'll be good. Yeah, you know, no. I I, th- I think that should be the extent of our relationship, sir. But um, but I remember you know reading zero, you know, like the the zero hour issues, and I remember reading the novelization of Nightfall. Uh, like at that school too, yeah. Denny O'Neill and all that. Oh yeah, excellent book, and and that's really where I got caught up on what had been going on in Batman, uh, you know, and leading up into into getting into the Batman book. So it was really. It was really this kind of magical time. It was kind of like a, a, a second golden age almost. Uh, because, you know, my golden age, my personal golden age is, is 88. Is the mm-hmm. fall of 88 with the Superman books leading up to exile and death in the family and all that. You know, I look back at that invasion and I look back at that time period and it's just like, you know, where no one could do any wrong. And, and, and mine, 94, the what? And mine is ninety ninety one. Because I started reading Batman right around the time that Tim Drake's parents got kidnapped. And between that and Armageddon 2001, and uh, I think one of the first Superman storylines I really wanted to collect was Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite. So that happening, that was my kind of, you know, jumping on at the right time, sort of like, yeah, everything is like really, really cool here sort of sort of moment but 94 put me on this road that i didn't really get off of until about 2007 Mm -hmm. so that's like 13 years of my young adult life taken up with 
adding more and more books to my pull list and getting more and more heavily invested into DC as a universe and, and, and going off and exploring Marvel every once in a while. And it all started in this year. So, you know, you, you say it's the most important year of the 90s. That's why it's the most important year of the 90s for me, because it's when I really just jumped headfirst into being a comic book fan. That spring is when I started buying Wizard Magazine. I was, just, I was just about to ask you, did you ever fall into the Wizard Trap? Because I started buying Wizard Magazine about a two years before then, and I wouldn't buy it on a consistent basis. It depended on whether or not I had the money because wizard magazine was about five bucks. Mm-hmm. And for a kid who's, you know, my job at the time for the first few years, I collected comics was at a stationary store. I went in on Saturday afternoon and Sunday, early Sunday morning. And I put the Sunday newspapers together for the, you know, for the people who came in. So like, you know, the, if, if you know anything about the New York times on Sunday, um, you could bench press it. It's that heavy. And half the paper would come in, and like the Daily News and Newsday and New York Post, half the paper would come in on Saturday because it was like the comics and the style section, stuff that wasn't urgent. And then Sunday morning, about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, you go in, like Dante at the beginning of Clerks, and you get your papers and you put them out. And my job was to put all that crap together, and I made 25 bucks a week. And that went to comics because, you know, in addition to mowing my grandmother's lawn, which I made like, I think, $15 or something. So I made a good 40 bucks, you know. Well, you could buy a lot of books back then. Yeah, no, so that's, that's... so if I wasn't doing anything else with that, um, I could afford Wizard. But you know, then I was, but I was more apt to buy, you know, um, the occasional trade paperback if I saw something really cool. It's why I own the Greatest Batman Stories Volume Two and the Crossover Classics trade paperback because I wow, saw that, that on the that newsstand. That was a twenty-five dollar book back then. That was I, expensive. I had I don't know why I had a ton of money in my hand for maybe it was Christmas or birthday money, and it was on the newsstand. Uh, it was on the stand at the comic shop, and I was like, "I'm buying this," <laughs> and I did. But like you know, but yeah, if, if if I could afford it, I would buy Wizard every month, and I was I think that's why I was buying a few more image books than I should have been. It, I never really got into Valiant though, but so Wizard and, Magazine is the LSD drug scene of comic books. It's you haven't listened. You haven't listened to the, the, the last episode I, I, I did on Doogie. No, um, I compared it to. I, I was trying to make an analogy that people would understand when I was talking about Spin. You know the the yeah. entertainment magazine, and I, I compared Spin to Wizard because. You know, you had Rolling Stone and you had Spin. And Rolling Stones for, you know, I'm, I'm definitely we're definitely a little younger for Rolling Stone because it was a boomer yeah. rock mag and everything. But at the same time, Rolling Stone was very serious. And Spin is a decent magazine, but Spin was always the magazine that if you wanted to know what the hip new trend thing was, at least back in the early '90s, you bought Spin. I never really did, but that's kind of what Wizard was for comics because you had other comics industry publications like you've mentioned comic scene um and then there was uh there which are a was, few which was put out by starlog yeah and starlog by that point as a as a company you had starlog and you had fangoria mm-hmm. who, you know you had so you had the science fiction and the horror, horror scene movie, pretty much yeah. wrapped up and they had comic scene and comic scene eventually had to start covering things like image yeah and all that stuff because it's what was there i bought for like 25 cents the young blood 
covered <laughs> issue of, of, of comic scene. And the article is the most, it's, it's pure puff. Whereas comic scene before that, um, you know, it, it, it's really, you, you can't, every time I start talking about something, I feel like I have to give like 20 years of context to this because we live in an era where, you know, you have comic book resources and Newsarama as the two yeah. like lead dogs that every day there's something new. Whereas when I first came across comic book resources, it updated three times a week. And when yeah. it updated, it was a big deal. Well, and, so, and back in and back in 1992, 93, 94, you had Comics Buyer's Guide. I think was still kicking around. Comics Buyer's Guide, which was an ad zine and a newspaper. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of important to remember that is that it looked and felt like a newspaper. A newspaper. And then um, something I I fished out of the bin uh, out of a quarter bin a couple weeks ago because uh, it had it just looked interesting was like Comics Interview, which, which I yeah. Which was put out starting in the eighties by David yeah. Anthony Kraft. Yes, and I have an, a writer. Uh, the issue that I found was an interview with. Um, it was about Swamp Thing, and I think it was an interview with Steve Bissett or John Tolbin, one of the guys who was doing the artwork on Swamp Thing when Alan Moore was writing it, because it was during it was from eighty five, eighty six, and I was just like, "This is a quarter," and I've never seen this in the quarter, but I'm gonna get it because it's a quarter. <laughs> But they were serious, not they were serious publications, but they had a lot more depth to them. They had a lot more heft yeah, to them. And Wizard was very flashy. Well, it was it was two guys that owned a, a sporting, uh, like a trading card shop, basically, and a sports memorabilia shop that pooled their money together and, and put out. And, and, and the reason why they got Todd McFarlane to draw their first cover is that they had him at their shop um, mm-hmm. when they started selling comics and he was a big hockey fan and they traded like a bunch of hockey cards with him. And so wizard hits. And at the time, amazing heroes, which was put out by Fantagraphics in the eighties, which was like the, the lead dog in terms of, of superhero fanzines. Cause you also had comics journal, which was still being published in the 90s but that was the serious that was for the people that read like beloved rockets mm-hmm. and cerebus and all that kind of stuff and you had comic scene which when it when it came back because there was an early 80s version and then there was a late 80s version and that is where i learned about things like faust and this dracula book that was out there for about five minutes and all these really weird and esoteric titles uh and eventually after Wizard hit and became a giant shell game. And that's the thing that I think that I could take away from Wizard Comics more than anything is that, and and, and to hear Jeff Loeb talk about it, they knew it was complete crap. Yeah. They knew it was this complete, Wizard was the pop, was your, 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 your high school, uh, like presidential election. You know, yeah. it wasn't about the issues. It was about who was more popular. And basically, because they were a uh, guide to comics, meaning they called a bunch of comic shops every month and asked what they were selling their books for and became the price guide, the leading price guide, eclipsing really Overstreet in the hearts and minds of comic book fans. Yeah, which is odd because um, I used to go to the library. The library used to have over street guides. And I, I would know. look. I would just out of curiosity flip through them. 
not to price my own comics, just the, and and the discrepancy between what something was going for in an Overstreet Guide and what Wizard was saying it was going for was sometimes phenomenal. Wizard had the first appearance of Cable at $65 for years. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I sold the first appearance of Deadpool last year for 80 bucks. So there's something wonky going on in the universe right now. I'm not quite sure what it is, but Deadpool, people love Deadpool and Cable. So yeah. uh, I, I rode that all the way to the bank for two books that I bought for 30 cents a piece. But Wizard, when I picked it up, I'll never forget it. It was uh, my, my friend Eric, who I drove to school every day, mm-hmm. uh, lived down the street literally down the street from a 7-Eleven. So we would, I would pick him up and we would go by the 7-Eleven. And my dad would give me a certain amount of money each week for lunches at school. And I would blow that buying stuff at 7-Eleven. And my <laughs> school lunches consisted of milk and an ice cream. Uh, <laughs> and then by the end of the week, it got kind of dodgy. But I, I remember it was, it was getting to be spring and 7-Eleven had a comic, uh, had a spinner rack. Now, to be fair, by this point, you weren't getting, like, DC books. You were getting, like, Ectokind and, yeah. you know, the, the Barkerverse stuff. And it was Wizard number 33, which had Catwoman on the cover. Oh, yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm uh, looking, Jim, I'm looking at I it right like now. boobs balance. Uh, <laughs> that was the issue that my mother saw on the coffee table and, like, kind of gave me the eyebrow. Like... <laughs> Um, what is the, like, like the, and, and granted I had it that by at that point, because this is, I'm looking at the wizard cover gallery on comic vine right now. This is May of 94. So by that, by that point I had five different issues of the sports illustrated swimsuit edition in my desk. It's like, um, yeah, do you want to see what else I've got? But I just remember that because she was just like alarmed because it is, it's total like, you know, yeah. Catwoman's boobs are in your face, and there was a contest that there. issue to count the number of cats on the cover, and you could win something. But I had not read comics scene in a couple of years by this point. I was totally my ear was so far away from the ground of what was coming on, coming in comics that it really had to like run me over to really mm-hmm. get my attention. <clears throat> so I remember it had an article about Catwoman which I found kind of interesting, had an interview with Dave Cockrum, who I, uh, who I, you know, I could recognize his work, but I never knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And it had all this other stuff. And suddenly I was just like, wow, there is this whole world of comics that I am just completely and utterly unaware of. And I considered myself a pretty big comic fan. And it was at that point that I realized my God, I know nothing about this. And so I, I, that was when, up until about 2001, I think, I bought Wizard every single month. And I'll never forget sitting in the cafeteria at Kutztown University with Wizard number 36 with me. And you had an article about Zero Hour. Mm-hmm. And you had an article about what became the Clone Saga in Spider-Man. And, funny, and I remember reading those and thinking, wow, something big's about to break. I'm glad I'm doing this. And funny enough, and I'm just going off my memory here, 
I'm pretty sure that with the exception of like one random issue of Wizard that I bought in like 2006, 36 was my last issue of Wizard. Really? Because because I'm looking at the covers and I'm like I don't recognize having any of these covers. I got it every single month. But every I got, every month I got Wizard. But I remember I devoured it. I remember reading about Zero Hour and I remember I had the Zero Month special they put out. And it's funny you should mention that that Catwoman cover because the next cover is uh, if you the issue issue 34 is Rogue and Psylocke, which I yep. think are also Jim Balin. Yep, Jim Balin has signed Psylocke's rump. Um, that's the that's the third cover featuring fourth if you count the Superman special because Superman did the they did a death of Superman special um, like you, you probably had it at one, I don't know if you had it or not at one point um, right around the time of the death of Superman but that's the third time in 33 issues they featured a DC character on their cover and the other two were Batman and Asbats and that's it. Every other cover was a Marvel or Image character. And yeah, the Marvel characters it, were like X-Men and Spider-Man. You know, yeah, cause it's almost like you have to explain what Wizard is. And yeah. just It's a company that came out and basically solidified the reading comics for profit and what's hot. And they really ignored DC for the longest time. Yes. The month the death of Superman came out, there was no coverage in Wizard no. Magazine. Maybe in like the, hey, 75's coming out. But you would think that with a huge storyline like that, that they would have like articles lined up and a cover ready to go. Mm-hmm. And this proves how they didn't know <coughs> how big it was going to be. Because yeah. if there was money to be had, Wizard would have had it. And they were really Marvel centric, and then Image centric uh, for very the nice. longest time. And it was really only in '94 that they started breaking away from that. Like you said, um, you know, Spider-Man and, and, and those character and the X-Men would still dominate the uh, you know the, the covers, but they started covering a lot more. Uh, a lot more of the DC stuff that was going on because of the popularity of things like zero hour. And it's really funny. Wizard tried in the beginning to have in-depth articles. There is a, and and I believe he has a a column to this day on one of the, the, the sites, Patrick Daniel O'Neill. Uh huh. I remember uh, was, was one of the big, and he still is, uh, but he was one of the big comics journalists of that time period. And he was writing, and he had a huge feud going on with Liefeld. I mean, they would still talk to each other. But he was the one asking the 60 Minutes questions Mm -hmm. to the image guys, where everyone else was just like, what do you want to draw? Well, didn't, didn't Wizard also hype that McFarlane peter David debate? At, yes. Um, the, was it San Diego? I don't remember. What it was one it was. of the big conventions, yeah. but the, they had a debate, which apparently, <clears throat> from all accounts, Peter David won hands down <sighs> because yes, uh, as that book I mentioned earlier, Comic Book Heroes said, Todd McFarlane had a vocabulary of about a hundred words, and half of them were fuck. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just like, wow. But you know, by '94, Image was still hot, mm-hmm. so they were still covering it. But I think they kind of saw the writing on the wall that 
they were only going to cover the books that were still consistently coming out, coming out on a, on a regular. Yeah, they were. They were. I'm looking at. I'm just looking at ninety four, and you've got. If it was a Jim Lee book, or it was Spawn, and uh, although they were they were promoting that, but Youngblood, not really. You know, I think no. I think that was the I think the bloom had gone off the rose at that point for them, and, and Liefeld was starting to be kind of the butt of the joke in that magazine. Um, so and. And 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 starting in in '94 with Image, I mean, it's just they went from having like, let's see how many titles are here, like eight titles on the stands, and then, good God, they they jumped up and it and it kept growing and growing, and then it shrank and grew and shrank and grew. And to be fair, you know, while Youngblood itself was not being published on a regular basis. Uh, Liefeld studio was kicking out a bunch of titles and even had like a major crossover going on in that time period. And, and, and let's not forget in, in May of 1994, uh, they had a bunch of the issues going to issue 25. Yes. And it was images of the future or something like that. It was just it's the, the awful storyline. Only and the only one of which out of those titles that actually made it to issue twenty five was Stormwatch. Yep. Now I might be talking about I asked her, but I'm pretty sure Stormwatch was the only one that hadn't been canceled and rebooted by then. Um you know, to volume two, volume three or whatever, and, and they actually I now I don't know if they actually weaved it in correctly. Because uh, I wasn't buying Stormwatch by then, but I do remember that. I do remember that gimmick too. And Wizard, Holy Wizard, crap. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just looking at Image through '94, and every month that I'm clicking on, I, I thought maybe they would would shrink, and it just keeps getting yeah. bigger. <laughs> Image, Image, and Wizard um, had a good relationship, and and Wizard was promoting one particular gimmick that they perfected, which was the mail away exclusive comic, the Ash Camp, oh, or the yeah. one or the one half issue, and the big one that year was Gen Thirteen, which eventually would cross over with Generation X, but uh, it was originally supposed to be called Gen X, but Marvel was launching Generation X at the same time. But Gen Thirteen, which was penciled by. Um, J. Scott Campbell, I think it was his big debut, combined it 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 was a there was a big wizard one half issue gimmick because the zero gimmick had been around for a few years then. Um and I think Valiant started Valiant or Dark Horse started that. Um but Wizard was doing these one half mailaways. You cut the coupon out of the magazine, you send in whatever shipping and you get it, and they would only give you the first oh how many ever. And um Gen 13, one half, it's like, it's it's this gimmick. It was a hyped up book, and it, it's that. I look at the I look at the premise behind the book, and I look at the covers of the book, and I see this sort of weird, and and it makes you feel uncomfortable, smarmy jailbait obsession mm-hmm. that a lot of men in our culture seem to have, because I think the main character, the redhead, was. Like a nerd, she gets powers, and all of a sudden she's got this slamming body, but she's like a teenager. Well, let's not forget that in the animated movie, uh, depending on which version you see, you either see her naked or you don't. So, <laughs> God. You know, it was kind of, kind of a scummy thing, but, yeah. you know, it's just, 
at first, for some reason, I thought that image shrank in '94. But as mm-hmm. I'm looking through these these covers, it just keeps getting. Oh my god! It it can't be. It it's. God, it's like Nazi Germany. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that. I, I'm not saying that in terms of that it's you know for the you know ethnic cleansing or anything. I'm just saying that in terms of of taking taking over things. I guess it was. '94 really was a big year for Image, wasn't it? Oh my they, god. <laughs> They managed, maybe it's one of the reasons they managed to survive. You know, I don't think Liefeld was, Liefeld would be gone within a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those guys who were still holding on were just putting out as much content as they could. I think they started to take a let's throw it at the wall and see what stick approach to some of their books. And I think they also got some of the right people at the head of things. I think Jim Valentino started mm-hmm. working more behind the scenes in terms of, you know, actually running the business. And they got some people on board who had more of a business sense. And I think that's what helped a lot to keep that company going. Um, and, you know, they could ride the hype wave as long as they could until, you know, people got completely fed up with some of their books. They also got like, um, Alan Moore was writing for them for a little while too. So they they did manage to keep attracting some names that 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 also helped them out, especially since Alan Moore was pissed off at everybody else, but you know himself. And, and Wizard was behind them, as we said. But let let's let's not, you know, we we kind of I think before when we were talking about the yeah. comic shops, we were talking about them as as being kind of victims. But let's be fair, like everything else. Like you know, you know when you, when you hear people talking about this era of comics, mm-hmm. you you know the, the the common thing you think is oh, image killed comics or image or wizard killed yeah. comics or you know chromium covers or you know hollow foil covers you know these are all the things that destroyed the industry in and of themselves. Where much like the Comics Code Authority, it's not that Frederick Wortham wrote a book. And everyone, you know, circled the wagons and started their own censoring company. No, it, it was a little more complicated than that. It was the Mothers of America. It yeah. was the Senate. It was the prevailing fear of juvenile delinquency. It was the fact that EC Comics was doing so well. It's going to say they, the want, other... they wanted to squeeze out Max Gaines. <laughs> yeah, and, and the other publishers, you know, wanted, wanted that to stop because they were, you know, he was out selling them. You know, with this, and 94 was kind of, 93 was the last year where the party was just like, you know, going uproariously. The party was still going on in 94, but I think, you know, people kind of got wind of what was going on. But unfortunately, once you're in, you either have to keep with it or just get out completely. Yeah. And... The reason why in December of 1994, there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, two, three, four, thirty-seven in a row, thirty-seven <laughs> image titles on the rack. Good God. Thirty. Okay, now think about that. Go to your comic shop now and count thirty-seven titles. And realize that that was just one company. That doesn't count what DC was putting out with four Superman titles and four Batman titles. But here's the thing. 
shops were ordering this stuff. Yes. Yeah, they were getting stuck with it, but they were ordering it. And as long as they were ordering it, the publishers were going to be putting it out. So it's this it's this perfect storm of Wizard Magazine hyping things that had absolutely no substance to them, either in terms of creative substance or in terms of you're actually going to be able to sell these later on. Yeah. You had the publishers kicking out, pumping out material like there's like there's no tomorrow. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, like in Germany, right, you know, during the Great Depression when there were, it, like, wheelbarrows full printing of... Printing money. <laughs> you know, printing money and wheelbarrows full of cash to get one loaf of bread. And you had these shops that were ordering this stuff in the hopes that, okay, this next thing, yeah, this is what's going to catch on. This is what's going to save us. You know, it's not all this, it's not all this product I have in the back room that's never going to sell. No, it's going to be Battlestone number two. That's what's going to save me. And it just didn't happen. And I'm going to um, stop it there. I'd like to thank Mike for coming on, but we're not done. Um, come back in two weeks where Mike and I will finish up our conversation and you will hear the conclusion of 1994, the year in comics. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. Destination